Hello, and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 119, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and at WSND on your radio dial, all Tatooine Radio, all the time. Ooh. Yeah. What do we got for him today, Chris? This week, we are going to be looking at Star Wars Volume 1, Number 1, from way back in July 1977 cover date. This is the one that was published by Marvel Comics. Written by Roy Thomas, art by Howard Chaikin, coloring by Maurice Severin, lettered by Jim Novak. He has a cover by Howard Chaikin and Tom Palmer, uh, edited by Roy Thomas, and editor-in-chief did by Archie Goodwin. Yeah. This one came with a cover price of 30 cents American. Now, before we get into it, let's meet some of the creators here. We got Roy Thomas, Roy William Thomas Jr. He was born November 22, 1940, in Jackson, Missouri. He was a fan of comics from a very early age, and he drew his own comics in grade school for his friends and family. Uh, the first of these would be titled All Giant Comics, which uh, he recalls as having featured such characters as Elephant Giant. Hey, that's pretty yeah, big. It, it, Sounds like a large character. <laughs> it does. It's what it says on the tin. Uh, now, he graduated from Southeast Missouri State University in 1961 with a Bachelor's of Science degree in Education. He would major in History and Social Science. Uh, he became an early and active member of Silver Age comic book fandom when it er organized in the early 60s. Then, a high school, te high school English teacher, Roy would take over for Jerry Bales as editor of the fanzine Alter Ego. That was 1964, uh, which is produced as a glossy dis deluxe magazine even today. That's right. We use it uh, quite a bit for this program. Mm -hmm. Now, we've told this story before. Uh, in 1953, Jerry Bales wrote to D.C. care of editor Julia Schwartz, to inquire about uh, back issues of All-Star Comics. His letter was forwarded to former, to former Justice Society writer Gardner Fox, and Bales was eventually able to convince Fox in early 1959 to sell him his personal bound copies of All-Star Comics number 1 through 24. In November 1960, a letter from Roy Thomas to Julius Schwartz inquiring about back issues led to Schwartz also putting Thomas in contact with all-star writer Gardner Fox. Obviously, Julia Schwartz didn't want to deal with either of them. He was just like, <laughs> whatever, <clears throat> move him on. <laughs> so Fox told Roy that he'd sold his bound copy to Jerry Bales and put Thomas in touch with him directly, who was then living in Detroit. And Bales and Thomas would go on to, uh, quote, exchange 100 pages worth of letters in less than five months, starting from the end of November 1960, and forge a friendship in which Thomas' words... In which, in Thomas's words, quote, set in motion a chain of events which led to alter ego, organized comics fandom, the Alley Awards, and maybe a bit more. And you can learn more about this early comic books fandom in the first episode of our series on underground comics and the first part uh, of The Direct Market, which are both episodes of Weird Comics History, and both of them are in our archives. Uh, now, letters from Roy appeared regularly in the pages of both DC and Marvel Comics, including The Flash, number 116, November 1960, cover date, Fantastic Four, number 5, July 1962, cover date, Fantastic Four, number 15, June 1963, cover date, and Fantastic Four, number 22, January 1964, cover date. In 1965, Thomas moved to New York City to take a job at DC Comics as assistant to Mort Weisinger, who was the editor of the Superman titles. 
Roy told the Comics Journal in 1981 that he had just accepted a fellowship to study foreign relations at George Washington University when he received a letter from Weisinger, with whom he had exchanged one or two letters tops, he said, asking Thomas to become, quote, his assistant editor on a several-week trial basis. Sounds like a Weisinger request. Uh, Roy didn't do well under the famously cruel Weisinger. He continued... I would go home to my dingy little room at, coincidentally, the George Washington Hotel in Manhattan during that second week and actually feeling tears well into my eyes at the ripe old age of 24. I just sat down one night at the hotel and I wrote Stanley a letter, not applying for a job or anything so mundane as that. I just said that I admired his work and would like to buy him a drink sometime. I feared he just might remember me from alter ego. In a 2005 interview with Alter Ego, Roy elaborated, I had already written a Jimmy Olsen script a few months before while still living and teaching in the St. Louis area. I worked for DC for eight days in late June and very early July of 1965. Well, after reaching out to Stan, Stan would offer Roy a Marvel writing test, which he told the Jack Kirby Collector magazine in 1998, quote, was four Jack Kirby pages from Fantastic Four Annual Number 2. Stanley had Saul Brodsky or someone take out the dialogue. It was just black and white. Other people like Denny O'Neill and Gary Friedrich took it, but soon afterwards we stopped using it. Uh, the next day, Thomas was at DC proofreading a Supergirl story when Marvel Secretary Flo Steinberg called and asked Thomas to meet with Stanley during lunch, and that's where Thomas uh, would agree to work for Marvel. He returned to DC to give indefinite notice to Weisinger, but uh, Weisinger ordered him to leave immediately. <laughs> uh, and he was uh, back at Marvel less than an hour after he first left, and he would have a modeling with Millie assignments due over that weekend. And uh, it was Friday, so it was super quick moving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, his employment was announced in the bullpen bulletin section of Fantastic Four number 47, that had a February 1966 cover date, under the heading, How About That Department? Uh, Roy's a fan who made it. Uh, the bullpen bulletins in Fantastic Four number 61 had an April 1967 cover date. That one describes Thomas, quote, admitting that he gave up a scholarship to George Washington University just to write for Marvel. Which is a little luck. Uh... Roundabout way to say what really happened, but it works for sure. the bullpen. Works for the bullpen. <laughs> it's honest enough. Sure. Uh, no, Roy reminisced about this to Alter Ego in 2005. He says, "I was hired after taking the writer's test, and my first official job title at Marvel was staff writer. I wasn't hired as an editor or assistant editor." I was supposed to come in 40 hours a week and write scripts on staff. I sat at this corrugated metal desk with a typewriter in a small office with production manager Saul Brodsky and corresponding secretary Flo Steinberg. Everybody who came up to Marvel wound up there, and the phone was constantly ringing with conversations going on all around me. Almost all at once, even though Stan proofed all the finished stories, he and Saul started having me check the corrections before they went out, and that would break up my concentration still further. And they kept asking me to do that, this or that, or questions like in which issue something happened, or Stan would come in and check something, because I knew a lot about Marvel continuity up to that time. It quickly became apparent to them, too, that the staff writing thing wasn't working. And so Stan segued me over to being an editorial assistant, which immediately worked out better for all concerned. 
Now, up to this point, Stan Lee had been the sole writer for all Marvel comics, uh, with his brother Larry Lieber pitching in where needed from time to time. Mm. Roy Thomas was the first writer hired by Stan to have staying power, even against veterans like Robert Bernstein, Ernie Hart, Leon Lazarus, and Don Rico, and talented new newcomers like Steve Skeets and Denny O'Neill, who, by the way, was a fellow Missourian, recommended to Stan by Roy Thomas himself. Uh, we think it's possible that Roy had stayed around for so long and gained a lot of favor because he writes the most like Stanley. Uh, yeah. We think all those, all those guys, including Denny O'Neill, they gave it their best shot and gave a pretty good effort too. But Roy, it's almost seamless. Sometimes you read those. Sure. I, you know, when I read those Silver Age comics, I don't know sometimes where uh, Stanley has left off and Roy Thomas has picked up. So that's uh, a little conjecture, but that's just what uh, we're thinking. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Roy's Marvel debut was the story Whom Can I Turn To in Modeling with Millie number 44 with a December 1965 cover date. A production glitch left a production glitch glitch left the logo and credits off the story which resulted in it being left out of many of his bibliographies, but he says it's his first and uh, he's the guy to take the, take his word for he's it. He's got no reason to lie about exactly, that. Exactly. You know? <laughs> it's exactly like you're working on the first, uh, you know, uh, Iron Man story or something. Yeah. So, uh, Thomas's first Marvel superhero scripting was My Life or Yours, the Iron Man feature in Tales of Suspense number 73, January 1966, cover date, from plots by Lee and Flo Steinberg. Roy suggests that Stan rewrote at least half of that first attempt. Two hmm. previously written freelance stories, that was common in those days. Sure. Uh, two previously written freelance stories for Charlton Comics also saw a print around this time. Uh, the second Trojan, Trojan War in Son of Vulcan number 50, that was a January 1966 cover date, and The Eye of Horus in Blue Beetle number 54, March 1966 cover date. Roy says, when Stan saw the couple of Charlton stories I'd written earlier in more of a Gardner Fox style, he wasn't too impressed. It's probably a good thing I already had my job at Marvel at that point. I think I was the right person in the right place at the right time, but there are other people who, had they been there, might have been just as right. Oh, Thomas would take on his first long-term Marvel title, which was Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, starting with issue number 29, April 1966 cover date, and he continued through number 41, or April 1967 cover date, as well as the series 1966 annual that was Sergeant Fury's special number two. He also began writing the title Uncanny X-Men, or what would become Uncanny X-Men, from issues 20 to 43, that was May 1966 through April 1968 cover dates, and he finally took over the Avengers, starting with issue number 35 December 1966 cover date, and he would continue there until uh, 1972. Uh, this last run is especially revered for its strong continuity and characterization, which uh, we come to uh, expect from That's Roy right. in years uh, to follow. Now, Roy wrote several Doctor Strange stories and Strange Tales, and when, the, when that title would just become Doctor Strange, he wrote the entire run. That's issues 169 through 183, June 1968 through November 1969 cover dates, with Gene Colan and Tom Palmer handling most of the art duties. Roy Thomas eloped in 1968, and when he returned to Marvel a day late, uh, coming back from a comic book convention in St. Louis, uh, production manager Sal Brodsky had reassigned Doctor Strange to newcomer Archie Goodwin. Roy convinced Brodsky to return it to him. He says, I got very possessive about Doctor Strange. It wasn't a huge seller, but by the time it was canceled, we were selling in the low 40% range of more than a 400,000 print run. So it was actually selling a couple hundred thousand copies. But at the time, you needed to sell even more. 
which is amazing to consider. It really is, yeah. <laughs> they would kill now, for Roy, that amount these days, for sure. Oh, boy. Now, uh, Roy eventually did have a honeymoon in the Caribbean, where he uh, scripted the wedding of uh, Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne during his honeymoon. Yeah. That would appear in the Avengers number 60, uh, January 1960, January 1969 cover date. So, you know, Lloyd was feeling romantic. Let me write about a sure. wedding. That's how you got the mood on. Uh, Roy left the Uncanny X-Men after issue number 43, but returned with issue number 55 with an April 1969 cover date when the series was on the verge of cancellation. His collaboration with artist Neil Adams through issue 63 with a December 1969 cover date is considered a creative highlight, though the title was canceled with issue 66. Roy Thomas won the 1969 Alley Award that year for Best Writer, while Neil Adams and Tom Palmer netted 1969 Alley Awards for Best Pencil Artist and Best Inking Artist, respectively. And that is a little weird sliver of X-Men right there. Uh, I'm a little bit familiar with it. I, I think, didn't Arnold Drake write an issue in there, too? Uh, he did, yeah. It was, it was uh, unfortunately too late. Yeah, it was too late to yeah. rescue that, uh, that yeah. series. Uh, Thomas, as I recall, though, it seemed to come out okay later on. But uh, anyway, maybe. so Thomas and artist Barry Windsor Smith launched Conan the Barbarian in October 1970. Roy would go on to script hundreds of Conan titles in Marvel Comics and the black and white magazine Savage Tales and the Savage Sword of Conan the Barbarian. Thomas was the first person other than Stan Lee to receive a writer's credit for The Amazing Spider-Man, and he and artist Ross Andrew launched the Spider-Man spinoff title Marvel Team-Up in March 1972. That same year, when Lee became Marvel's publisher, Thomas succeeded him as editor-in-chief, a young guy, too. Yeah. Uh, while continuing to script the flagship titles like Fantastic Four and Amazing Spider-Man. Roy launched such new titles as The Defenders and What If, a title that explored alternate possibilities. We discussed the origins of The Defenders in episode number 32 of Cosmic Treadmill in our archives. Roy was also, also indulged his love for Golden Age comics when he g- gave the World War II era team The Invaders their own series, beginning with Giant Size Invaders number 1 in 1975. That same year, Thomas wrote the first joint publishing venture between Marvel and DC Comics, a 72-page Wizard of Oz movie adaptation in an oversized Treasury Edition format with art by John Buscema. Roy and Buscema also crafted a comics adaptation of Marvel, of Tarzan, for Marvel in June 1977. So he's a real lazy guy, this Roy Thomas, right, Chris? Yeah, real layabout. Really good. Hop to it, do something. Yeah. also, Roy Thomas was instrumental in licensing the Star Wars adaptation for Marvel. So instrumental, in fact, that he wrote the issue we're going to read today. But first, let's hop across the table and meet Howard Chaikin. That's Howard Victor Chaikin. He was born October 7, 1950, in Newark, New Jersey. His parents separated shortly after he was born. Uh, in a 2010 interview for the University of Mississippi, Howard said that his biological father was declared dead. Though, he would go on to find his father as an adult. Weird. Uh, Yeah, a little weird. Uh, Chaikin was initially raised by his grandparents on Staten Island until 1953 when his mother remarried and then they all moved to Brooklyn. Uh, Howard thought uh, this was his biological father until the 1990s and called him nutty and cruel. Uh, Still, this man encouraged Howard's artistic pursuits and actually bought him sketchbooks, too. Uh, When Howard turned 14, his mother was again divorced, and they moved to Kew Gardens in Queens. 
Howard, Howard was introduced to comic books when his cousin dumped a refrigerator box full of them right on him. Uh, Howard graduated from a Jamaica high school in 1967, and in mid-1968, he worked at Zenith Press. Uh, he would attend Columbia College in Chicago that fall, but he left and returned to New York the following year. Jenkins says that after high school, I hitchhiked around the country after before becoming, at 19, a gopher for the New York City-based comic book artist Gil Kane, whom he could name as his greatest influence. To, comp, to the magazine comic book artist in 2013, Chaikin said, I'd heard on the grapevine that Gil's assistant had dropped dead of a heart attack at 23. I gave Gil a call, and he said, yeah, I can use you. So I went to work for him. He was doing the early graphic novel Black Mark, and I did a really bad job pacing up the dialogue and putting in Zipatone. It was a great apprenticeship. I learned a lot from watching Gil work. In 1970, Howard began publishing his art in comics and science fiction fanzines, sometimes under the pseudonym Eric Pave. That same year, he left Gil Kane and became an assistant to Wally Wood in, in his Valley Stream Long Island studio. He only had that gig for a couple of months. Howard first published work uh, appeared in the adult-themed Western feature Shattuck in the military newspaper The Overseas Weekly in 1971. Overseas Weekly was one of Wally Wood's clients. Howard also ghosted some stuff for Gray Morrow. He says, I penciled a Man-Thing story he did for Marvel Comics Fear No. 10, October 1972, cover date, and I penciled a thing for National Lampoon called Michael Rockefeller in the Jungles of New Guinea. And so you know, Michael Clark Rockefeller was the fifth child of former New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, who disappeared during an expedition in the Asmat region of southwestern New Guinea. An inquest in 2014 turned up eyewitness accounts of Michael being killed as soon as he swam to shore, but no concrete evidence has ever been found. Hmm. Uh, Howard would then go on to apprentice under Neil Adams, uh, working with the artist at Adams' home in the Bronx. Only the best apprenticeships for this guy, huh? I mean, just right? good guy. <laughs> Gil Kane, Wally Wood, Neil mm-hmm. Adams. Uh, then, he worked with Will, then he worked with Will Eisner, and then he worked under uh, Ditko <laughs> and Ben Kirby while he was at it. <laughs> no, he says that this led to a lot of uh, work at D.C. Uh, he explained this in Comic Book Artist magazine. He says... Neil showed me to editors Murray Boltonoff and Julia Schwartz. Murray gave me a one-page filler. I also got some work from, from Dorothy Woolfolk, who edited the Love Comics. It was all just dreadful stuff, but you stumble along and you learn. A problem for me was that by the time I became a professional, I lost any interest whatsoever in superhero comics. I'm not a horror comics guy, and I didn't know what the hell to do. What he, what I wanted to do was, what I wanted to draw is guys with guns, guys with swords, and women with big boobs, and that was the extent of my interest in comics at the time. Now, the one-page filler was titled "Strange Neighbor," and it was inventoried and eventually published in Secrets of Sinister House number 17. That was in May 1974, cover date. His other earliest known DC work was penciling and inking the three-page story, Not Old Enough, that appeared in Young Romance number 185, August 1972, cover date, and penciling the eight-page supernatural story, Eye of the Beholder, that appeared in Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion number 7, October 1972, cover date, and also the one-page Enter the Portals of Weird War, and that appeared in Weird War Tales number 9, December 1972, cover date. At one point, Chaikin lived in the same Queens apartment building as artists Alan Milgram, Walter Simonson, and Bernie Wrightson. 
to the Los Angeles Times in 2017, Simonson recalled, We'd get it together at 3 a.m. They'd come up and we'd have popcorn and sit around and talk about whatever a 26, 27, and 20-year-old guys talk about. Our art, TV, you name it. I pretty much knew at the time, these are the good old days. After doing some more work for DC, uh, Howard worked, moved to Marvel Comics and began work as co-artist with Neil Adams on the first Kill Raven story in Amazing Adventures number 18 with a May 1973 cover date. After this, Chaykin was given various adventure strips to draw for Marvel, including his own creation, Dominic Fortune, now in the pages of Marvel Preview. In 1976, Chaykin got the draw of drawing the Marvel Comics adaptation of the first Star Wars film, and we're going to read that first issue in just a couple of minutes. But first, we want to talk about a little bit about how the deal went down between Marvel and Star Wars, because it's sort of interesting where Marvel was at the time and what Star Wars was at the time, which was an idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Lippincott, here's a name that fi- figures gr- greatly in this story. This was Lucasfilm's publicity supervisor, and he initially approached publisher Stan Lee at Marvel Comics in 1975 about publishing a Star Wars comic book prior to the film's release. This was They did it in order to drum up enthusiasm among the target audience, so the comic was meant to be a promotion for the movie, mm. not the other way around. That's an important distinction uh, for later uh, negotiations. Sure. Now, Lee initially declined to consider it until the film was completed and only persuaded otherwise uh, in a second meeting arranged by Roy Thomas, who wanted to edit the series. Lippincott and Roy Thomas had some familiarity with each other, and Roy had just moved to Los Angeles, so Lippincott pressed Roy to get Stan into that second discussion. In an interview from Alter Ego number 145, March 2017 cover date, which is something we will be referencing a lot in this episode from here on out, (laughs) Roy Thomas recalled this attempt in a meeting between he and Charles Lippincott in February 1976. He said, Anyway, when Charlie and comics retailer and mutual friend Ed Summer arrived, Charlie was toting this big art briefcase. He told me about his attempt to meet with Stan. At this point, Charlie had been to began to relate the film's plot in some detail. Ed probably chimed in from time to time, but Charlie did most of the talking, with an occasional query from me. And all the time he's giving his spiel, he's showing me these beautiful color photostats from the briefcase. I know now that they're the paintings Ralph McQuarrie did to represent key sequences in the movie. Technically, they're called production sketches, but they're actually full paintings, about a dozen of them. They're quite famous now, and they've been, have even been marketed and sold as a portfolio. But at the time, only a handful of people had seen them. They served as visual accompaniment to the story Charlie was narrating to me. He turned over a new drawing as he got to a new point in the storyline. He continues, He started off, I think, with Macquarie's painting of the planet Tatooine and its two moons. Apparently, Luke's last name has still hadn't been decided on. I'm pretty sure Charlie told me it might still be either Star Walker or Star Killer. No matter, he mostly just wanted to refer to the hero as Luke. Funny thing is, it never occurred to me that at the time, Luke is short for Lucas. And that actually never occurred that, that to actually, me either. That yeah. never, <laughs> never occurred to me until just now. Yeah. <laughs> he continues, So anyway, Charlie charges ahead with his narration, doing a good job of spinning the story. Only I had a bit of trouble following it because I'm hearing all these names I'd never heard before. R2-D2 and C-3PO. I naturally saw in my head in numeral form, not spelled out as they often are now. When he mentioned Obi-Wan Kenobi, that instantly conjured up, in my mind, a Japanese guy. 
though I'm pretty sure Charlie told me at this point he'd be played by Alec Guinness. I definitely remember that when I first heard the name Chewbacca the Wookiee, I did a mental double take. I immediately wondered, and still do, if the name somehow was somehow derived from chewing tobacco, <laughs> which some people pronounce as chew tobacco. <laughs> I never thought of that either. Me neither. <laughs> He he continues, it would make sense with all that hair all over his body uh, looking like some old-timers chewing tobacco-stained beard. That's disgusting. Uh, Although at the time, I don't think I'd seen a picture of Chewbacca among the paintings, only heard the name in conjunction with Han Solo. Still, all I'm hearing from Charlie are science fiction elements, so mentally I'm glazing over. Then he continues, but then as he's rolling along, Charlie says, this next sketch is of what we call the cantina sequence. He pulls out a now iconic painting of Han Solo, who at this point doesn't look like Harrison Ford, facing a space alien in a showdown, a sort of slap leather situation, in what looks like a saloon in an old western movie, with a couple of aliens and stormtroopers looking on. At this stage, I said something along the lines of, okay, I'll do it. Charlie and Ed were real surprised at this because up to this point I'd given them no encouragement. So I explained that they'd been talking about this movie as science fiction, and science fiction doesn't have a great track record in comics. But that cantina painting made it all hit home to me, as I told them, that what the movie really was was a space opera, a blend of the science fiction and western genres. And from what I know, Western comics were selling no better than science fiction comics at the <laughs> time, so I'm not really sure what got him so excited, but it did get him excited and put him on board. Yeah, he even got annoyed when that uh, when All-Star Comics turned to All-Star Western. So, uh, you, you know, like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, strangely, Roy Thomas has no specific memory of this meeting between Charles Lippincott, himself, and Stan Lee, and possibly others, including Marvel President Jim Galton. Uh, he admits that it must have happened, but he remembers convincing Stan Lee to license Star Wars over a phone call. Others in attendance remembering the meeting vividly, uh, and their stories corroborate. So the point of this is, this happened. It did happen. <laughs> whether, yes. he, whether he remembers it or not, no. it happened. Now, since movie tie-in comics rarely sold well, Stanley negotiated a publishing arrangement which gave no royalties to Lucasfilm until sales exceeded 100,000 copies. And at that point, their deal could be revisited. Hmm. So uh, it was a rough road to get there, but it finally did. Yeah. And uh, we're going to discuss the first issue. Right now. All right. Star Wars number one. The cover is by Howard Chaikin and Tom Palmer, and it's composed similarly to the one of the movie posters. Uh, Luke Skywalker stands in the foreground with his lightsaber out. Princess Leia is behind him over his right shoulder. He's flanked by Han Solo, blaster drawn, and uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi also with a lightsaber. X-Wing fighters hover at the borders, and uh, what might be the Death Star is far in the background. You can't really tell, but we uh, we can assume, knowing what we know now, that uh, it's the Death Star. Uh, and rising behind the group of heroes is Darth Vader's giant head. And uh, he's green, <laughs> with fiery yellow eyes. Uh, this we see this a lot, and I will we will be commenting on it as we go through. But Howard Chaykin and everyone else working was working with some production sketches, those paintings we talked about, and black and white stills for much of this process. So they never really got a good look at Darth Vader until the movie was finished. For this reason, Darth Vader especially looks kind of off model throughout a lot of this issue mm-hmm. with Star Wars, uh, and even the, the early issues. They figured it out by you know issue six. They uh, were pretty much on board with the right look. Uh, Above the logos is the title, The Greatest Space Fantasy Film of All, and a burst informs us that this is the fabulous first issue. 
Cover captions read, Enter Luke Skywalker. Will he save the galaxy or destroy it? And Marvel's epic official adaptation of a film by George Lucas. Now, the opening splash panel shows a Star Destroyer blasting the back of some other spaceship into smithereens. And there's a whole lot of copy. Yeah, the captions read, It is a period of civil war in the galaxy. A brave alliance of underground freedom fighters has challenged this tyranny and oppression of the awesome galactic empire. To crush the rebellion once and for all, the Empire is constructing a sinister new battle station, powerful powerful enough to destroy an entire planet. Its completion will spell certain doom for the champions of freedom. Striking from a fortress hidden among the billions of stars in the galaxy, rebel spaceships have won their first victory in a battle with the powerful Imperial Starfleet. The Empire fears that another defeat could bring a thousand more solar systems into this rebellion, and Imperial control over the galaxy would be lost forever. Another caption reads, But this is the near future. At this moment, above the yellow planet Tatooine, a gigantic Imperial starship pursues a rebel spacecraft. Its deadly laser bolts disintegrate the smaller ship's main solar fin with a soul-searing shudder. Moments later, grappling rays have joined the two vessels, and suddenly the Imperial troops come pouring through a wide, gaping hole. I hate those soul-searing shutters, right? Those really The worst. Those, they go right the through your soul is the problem, really. Take forever to heal. <laughs> uh, so then some off-model stormtroopers do emerge from the smoking hole, and, well, we'll just assume this is the interior of a spaceship, just sort of a big red background. Uh, yeah. but, but the caption did tell us what was happening. So stormtroopers are firing blasters everywhere, taking out some rebels, and the rebels are also firing back. Yeah, C-3PO and R2-D2 are just sort of standing around in the chaos. Caption reads, Amid this chaos, it is strange, perhaps, to focus not upon the humans on both sides who live and violently die, but upon a pair of robots, the designated C-3PO and R2-D2. And I apologize ahead of time for the voice I'm going to give C-3PO. Uh, this is madness, R2. R2-D2 beeps three times. Yes, R2, I suppose you're right. We should flee this way, down the corridor. The two droids hustle down the hallway while things explode around them, and C-3PO complains the entire time, of course. That's what he does. Uh, We cut to the surface of the desert planet Tatooine, where Luke Skywalker stands outside his landspeeder. He's peering into the sky with some binoculars. Below, on the death-white wasteland, which is the planet Tatooine, a bright sparkle in the morning sky catches a watchful eye. Luke Skywalker lowers his macro binoculars, standing transfixed for a moment. Then he leaps nimbly into the nearby recently repaired landspeeder and aims the craft toward the distant town of Anchorhead. At this point, I'm, I'm wondering, do we do we really need pictures in this comic? No, this, this might be one we can just read the captions and just uh, right? that will be yeah. done, really. <laughs> uh, back onto that wounded starship, we have Darth Vader, and he's having some polite conversation with a rebel soldier with his hand around the guy's throat. Yes, yeah, so a stormtrooper says, Darth Vader, the ship's information retrieval system has been wiped clean. Then this rebel will tell us what we need to know. Where is the data you intercepted? We're on a diplomatic mission. Liar! Where are those information tapes? You mean my learning to speak Spanish while you sleep program? Or That's maybe exactly learn, the information learn to quit I need. Yeah, I need that. <laughs> <laughs> now Darth Vader snaps the guy's neck before he can even answer. The fool is dead. Start tearing the ship apart, piece by piece, until you have those tapes. And find the passengers of this vessel. I want them. Alive. 
Well, so long as nobody goes around snapping their necks, they should be all right. Yeah, right? really. <laughs> Mr. I, I want mean, them you're, alive. You're the one, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, meanwhile, not, not far too distant here, uh, we have an unknown girl kneeling before R2-D2 while C-3PO complains about it. Uh, now, this unknown girl is, of course, Princess Leia. Right, we know that now. Caption reads, The unknown girl who kneels by the smaller robot is probably beautiful by human standards. But 3PO, being a robot himself, takes scant notice of her. And the next moment, she is gone, as if she were part of the thickening haze. Well, R2, what are we going to do? We'll be sent to the spice mines of Kessel, or even... Wait, where are you going? While cruising along to an escape pod, R2-D2 beeps out that he's got a mission and calls C-3PO a mindless philosopher. In beeps somehow. I, I didn't know we understood. I didn't know we spoke that. No, they somehow. <laughs> uh, they shove off in the escape pod despite C3PO's protests, and back on the ship, Princess Leia is caught by a stormtrooper and taken to Darth Vader. We jump back to Anchorhead Tatooine. Luke is cruising into town like a bat out of hell. His land speeder makes a scree, despite the fact that it's uh, hovering off the ground. Maybe he needs his shocks checked. I don't really understand what could be screeching on it. Yeah, we need a mechanic in here. Now, uh, Luke Luke walks into, uh, we're going to say that this is the cantina, though it doesn't quite look like the one from the movie, but there are people milling about. Yeah, uh, something's going on here. So uh, two of friends of Luke sit at a table with a snow globe on it, where it looks like it, and also it looks like maybe some double-A batteries. That's hard to say. (laughs) If we didn't know any better, I would swear these guys were doing drugs, just because they have all this weird paraphernalia on the table. Paraphernalia. I don't know. A guy called Fixer goes, hey, Gammy. Did I hear a young noise blast through here? Cammy replies, It was Wormy on another rampage, Fixer. Oh, well, I'm glad you cleared that up. That yeah. explains everything. <laughs> what language was that, ma'am? Uh, so uh, <laughs> Luke says, Shape it up, you two. Biggs! A dark-haired fellow with a goatee uh, is wearing a cape. He approaches Luke, and they grasp at each other warmly. When did you get back? This is Biggs, and he goes, just now. I thought you'd be here. Certainly didn't expect you to be out working. <laughs> Classic Biggs. Right. Hey, what happened? Didn't you get your commission? Nah, how would chicken takes forever on those dang things? Hey. Oh. <laughs> Biggs replies, wife, wife, of course I got it. Signed aboard the Rand Ecliptic last week. First mate Biggs Darklighter at your service. Wait, I almost forgot. There's a battle going on right here in our system. Come and take a look. Not again. Forget it. Oh, this is Fixer. I'm sorry. Not again. Forget it, Biggs. He's always... No, I mean it. Come on. Biggs and Luke head outside, and Biggs peers into the sky with Luke's binoculars. Or, what are they, macro binoculars? Sure, why not? (laughs) Up there. Can you see? That's no battle hot shot. They're just sitting there. Probably a freighter tanker refueling. But there was a lot of firing earlier. I keep telling you, Wormy, the Rebellion's a long way from here. I doubt if the Empire could even fight to keep this system. Believe me, Luke, this planet is a big a hunk of nothing. And my parents are lame and my teachers are losers, too. I never asked to be born. That's, you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, back out in space, uh, right above planet Tatooine, in fact, <laughs> Princess Leia's being hustled right over to Lord Vader. Lord Vader, I should have known. Only you could be so bold. Not everyone can pull off that helmet and cape ensemble. Nah, he does good with it. (laughs) Well, the Imperial Senate will not sit still for this. 
when they hear you've attacked a diplomatic... Don't play games with me, your highness. This ship passed directly through a restricted system. Several transmissions were beamed to the ship by spies, who are now unfortunately dead. I want to know what happened to those data tapes. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, do you mean that best of CCR cassette she borrowed like 10 years ago? Because she lost it, dude. Sorry. <laughs> nah, she probably lent it out again. Probably, actually, probably just said she lost it. She still has it. Probably. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate on a diplomatic mission to... You're part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Hey, she could be, she could be all things to everybody. That's she could right, be that too, not? right? She's a modern woman. Yeah. Now, an Imperial officer suggests to Darth Vader that he kill Princess Leia, but he says he needs her to find the Rebel Fortress. Uh, he's got no problem vaporizing her ship, however. Vaporize the ship. Don't leave anything. Then inform her father and the Senate that all aboard were killed. Oh, that's cold. Yeesh. I've been informed that a repair pod was somehow jettisoned during the fighting. The data tapes might be hidden in it, so send a detachment down to retrieve them without attracting attention. Now we flip back to Tatooine, far from Anchorhead. Below, in a place called Jundland, or No Man's Land, where rugged desert mesas meet the foreboding Dune Sea, the life pod Dark Vader seeks lies half buried in the sand. I thought it was a repair pod. Uh, maybe the thing that it repairs is life? That's possible. 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 <laughs> uh, C-3PO says, what a forsaken place this is. We seem to be made to suffer. And R2-D2 beeps a few times. I've got to rest before I fall apart. My joints are almost fr- Where do you think you're going? R2-D2 beeps and tweets a little, then he rolls off. Well, I'm not going that way. Go on if you want to. And don't let me catch you following me and begging for help, because you won't get it. Do you hear me, R2? R2-D2 zapped by a beam fired by some sand Jawas. Those are those creepy short guys in brown cloaks with light bulb eyeballs. <laughs> you guys know what they are. Yes. Uh, they hustle down a cliffside and they grab R2-D2 and load him into that space freighter or whatever. The, whatever they, come on, you see the movie, you know what we're talking about here. That big box. Yes, exactly. Rusty. The big giant box. <laughs> C-3PO goes, R2? Now over an anchor head, Luke and Biggs are having a heart-to-heart. Things haven't been the same since you left Tatooine, Biggs. It's been so quiet. Luke, I shouldn't tell you this, but uh, you're the only one I can trust. And I, I, I don't come back. I, I want somebody to know. What are you talking about? I made some friends at the Academy, Luke. When our frigate goes to one of those central systems, we're going to jump ship and join the Alliance. Join the Rebellion? Are you kidding? How? Quiet down, will you? My friend has a friend on Bastine who might help us make contact. You're crazy. You could wander around forever trying to find them. I know it's a long shot, but I'm not going to wait for the Empire to draft me into service. This rebellion is spreading, and I want to be on the side I believe in. And I'm stuck here on Tatooine. Sure, Luke. Let's let's make this conversation all about you. Really? <laughs> right? Uh, Biggs continues, I thought you were going to go to the Academy next turn. Get off this rock. Not likely. My uncle needs me here for just one more season. I can't leave him now. What good is all your uncle's work if he ends up merely a tenant soon, slaving away for greater glory of the Empire? Well, I've got to go. I'm leaving in the morning. Then I guess I won't see you. Maybe someday. I'll keep a lookout. Take care of yourself, Biggs. You'll always be the best friend I've got. 
Now, for some reason, I feel like th- this might have just doomed him to a gruesome death. Something, something weird about that, yeah. And no matter. No, probably, no, probably means nothing. <laughs> now, over in a soulless Imperial conference room somewhere in the galaxy, we have some soulless Imperial officers having a conference. Yes, Commander Ted says, I tell you, Darth Vader has gone too far. This Sith Lord sent by the Emperor will be our undoing. The Rebel Alliance is more dangerous than you realize. Admiral Admiral Marty, (laughs) easy for me to say, (laughs) says, uh, Dangerous to your Starfleet, Commander Tag. Not to this battle station. You're a fool, Admiral Marty. The Rebellion will continue to gain support of the Imperial Senate as long as... Then an older, severe-looking guy enters the room with Darth Vader uh, being around behind him there. This is uh, behind him, yeah. This is uh, Grand Moff talking, and he's a pretty big deal in the Empire. And Darth Vader looks like a mailbox in this. Room. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> oh boy! Now, uh, talking goes. How do, how do I do a German accent again? <laughs> Hello, this is good. The, the Imperial Senate is not longer of concern to us, gentlemen. I have just received word that the Emperor has dissolved the Council permanently. The last remnants of the Old Republic have been swept away. The regional governors now have direct control over their territories. Impossible. How will the Emperor maintain control without the bureaucracy? Especially having without having properly filled out the forms. Yeah, right? triplicate, as I understand it, you got to do I it. Think yeah. That's right. Now, talking explains that fear will control the people of the galaxy. Uh, you know, fear of this nearly complete battle station. That is. And Admiral Monty is especially proud of it. Any attack made against the station will, by the rebels, be a useless gesture, no matter what technical data they've obtained. This battle station is now the ultimate power in the universe. Don't become too proud of this technological terror you've created, Admiral Motti. But he told him not to get cocky. (laughs) That's somebody else. That's somebody else. (laughs) Don't try to frighten us with your sorcerer's ways, Lord Vader. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion hasn't helped you conjure up these stolen data types or enabled you to find the rebel's hidden fortress. Why I have to laugh. can't breathe. And this is that scene where Darth Vader's applying some of that old ethereal force power to uh, Admiral Monty's windpipe. Basically, if you don't know what the force is, which would be amazing to me, uh, <laughs> it's telekinesis. That's all it is. So, uh, Grand Moff Tarkin tells Darth Vader to knock it off and let's get serious here and says that Vader will find the Rebel Fortress in time for the battle station to be complete. Then the Empire will wipe him out on the inaugural test run. So that'll be a nice opening day celebration type of event. You cut the ribbon, you blow up the thing. Exactly. <laughs> it's, 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 everyone's having a good time. Uh, back on Tatooine, C-3PO and R2-D2 are being transported elsewhere on the planet for sale. Come on, you know the scene in the movie that's about to happen. Yes. Uh, though in this instance, uh, he's there with his aunt and uncle. Yeah, his aunt Beru says, Luke, tell your Uncle Owen that if he gets a translator, to be sure it speaks bachi. What's to speak? Uh, just, you know, roll the ball as close to the mark as you can, right? Yeah, I mean, that's you play bachi? yeah, that's all just yeah. bocce ball, right? Uh, but maybe but there must be a deeper thing under there. I don't maybe. know. <laughs> now, uh, we jump down to the uh, sales floor uh, where Uncle Owen and Luke are wandering around uh, all the robots on display. Uh, Uncle Owen grabs R2-D2 and then sets his sights on C-3PO. You, robot, do you know etiquette and protocol? Do I know protocol? Well, that's my primary function. I'm well-versed in the customs and... I don't need a protocol, droid. 
I need a droid that knows something about the binary language of moisture vaporators. Vaporators? Sir, my first job was programming binary load fill lifters. A very similar... Do you speak bocce? It's like a second language for me, sir. I'm as fluent as... Shut up. Uncle Owen turns to a Jawa and makes a deal. I'll take this one. Shutting up, sir. Luke, take them to the garage and clean them up. But I was going into Tashi Station to... After you finished your chores. I think Luke didn't ask to be born either. Come on. Really? Oh, it's his uncle, though. What are you going to do? <laughs> now, uh, he has no say in the matter, I mm-hmm. think. Now, fiddling with R2-D2, uh, Luke notices something sprawling out of it. Uncle Owen, this R2 unit has a bad motivator. Look! If I might say so, sir, this R2 unit is a top condition. A real bargain. Well, then we'll take it. As a replacement, I'll take care of the Jawas. Luke, run along. Wow, if cleaning up the robots in the garage takes that little effort? I mean, it's a wonder that Luke even complained about it to begin with, right? Well, this is Luke Skywalker work we're talking about. We never saw a moment he couldn't complain about, so. I mean, maybe he could have used a motivator. Like, like <laughs> Tony Robbins, it, right? Yeah. Uh, Luke heads off with the new droids, C-3PO acting like a snippy jerk as usual. Back at the farm, we have Luke fiddling with that R2 unit and whining. It just isn't fair. Biggs is right. I'll never get out of here. Is there anything I might do to help, sir? Yeah, you can call me Luke. Luke is really going at R2-D2's dome with what looks like a couple of screwdrivers at this point. Hmm, lots of carbon scoring here. You've both seen a lot of action. Well, yeah, they they, they get around. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, my little friend, you've got something jammed in here real good. Let's see what... Now, if you don't know what happens next, uh, you're really out of the loop. I mean, Seriously. I don't, I don't see movies, and I know what this he, is. Even, even Chris knows. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a small hologram of Princess Leia appears and says, "Obi Wan Kenobi, help me! You're my only hope." What's this? A three-dimensional hologram, and she's beautiful. Hey, that's your own. Never mind. Uh, now, uh, <clears throat> C-3PO translates for R2-D2, essentially revealing nothing substantial to Luke. Uh, <laughs> basically, just that this is a message for Obi-Wan Kenobi, which uh, is basically the message that is looping over and over again anyway. If you didn't know that, you weren't listening to it, yeah. Yeah. I don't know any Obi-Wan, but there's an old Ben Kenobi who lives out beyond the Dune Sea. Sort of a hermit. I wonder, hmm... I wonder if I remove this restraining bolt. And, and Kenobi is like Smith on tattooing, exactly. right? Exactly. Also, there's an, an Arnold Kenobi now that I think about it. So, Luke tools around with R2-D2 a little bit more, uh, removing a restraint. Uh, but this just makes the hologram go awake entirely. Now the hologram's disappeared, girl and all. Play back the entire message, R2. Make her come back. R2-D2 beeps a bit, and then C-3PO translates. I'm sorry, sir, but he appears to have picked up a slight flutter. Perhaps later. And later, Luke has dinner with his aunt and uncle. Uh, This is a pretty faithful word-for-word reenactment of this scene from the movie, uh, where, you know, Luke says he wants to go to the Academy. Luke mentions the hologram and Ben Kenobi. Uncle Owen gets unusually agitated hearing about it and insists the R2 unit's memory be wiped. I don't remember any of this. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, Luke mentions uh, perhaps going to the Academy. Uh, Uncle Owen says he needs him on the farm another season. 
I mean, it's interesting because well, we'll talk about this more later. But uh, <laughs> then Luke says, "You're not my real dad." Slams his bedroom door, <laughs> tears the heavy poster, heavy metal posters off his wall, etc. That's you can configure what happens. Yeah. So uh, actually, Luke heads back to wherever those droids droids are being kept, the garage or whatever it is, and finds C-3PO and R2D2 are not around. He uses a control box to get C-3PO to leap from his hiding spot. What were you hiding for? And where's R2? Wasn't my fault, sir. Please don't deactivate me. I told him not to go, but he's faulty, malfunctioning, kept babbling on about his mission. Oh, no! Luke rushes outside to see if he can get a bead on R2-D2. No sign of him, even with these electro-binoculars. Now, Reggie, you think these are better or worse than the macro-binoculars that he used earlier? I'm not sure. Maybe this is night. This is for night only and the other one's for day. (laughs) Gotta have all your binoculars, yeah. Uncle Owen's going to kill me for this. Begging your pardon, sir, but can't we just go after him? Not at night. It's too dangerous with all the sand people around. But come morning, Will. Then Uncle Owen calls from afar. Luke, you about finished with those droids? And Luke calls back. Be there in a minute, Uncle Owen. That little R2 droid is going to get me into a lot of trouble. He excels at that, sir. These asteroid droids are getting are getting too much for me. Even I can't understand their logic at times. So Luke heads out with C-3PO at dawn the very next day to find that blasted R2 unit. At that same moment, nearby, a bunch of stormtroopers are picking over the escape pod that brought C-3PO and R2-D2 to Tatooine. You mean repair pod? Ah, uh, whatever. Now they find no data tapes within the pod, but one stormtrooper finds a sliver of metal and therefore concludes that the pod carried droids. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay. Why would the there pod be might... metal around a crash site of a, of a spaceship of a pod. Yeah, unless droids true. had been there? That's what <laughs> now, uh, at this point, Luke is taking C-3PO on a lovely tour of Tatooine. Old Ben Kenobi lives out in this direction somewhere, 3PO, but I don't see what R2 could have... Wait! There's something dead ahead on the scanner! Looks like our droid! Hit it, 3PO! As they speed along the deep canyon, a spooky sand person aims a sniper rifle at Luke and C-3PO. But then some other sand person stops him. They hop on their bonthas, which are kind of like a yak in an elephant had a baby, kind of, and uh, ride off. Meanwhile, Luke and C-3PO have found R2-D2, and he's in the canyon just beeping away. And just where did you think you were going? R2-D2 beeps in response. 3PO? He's still, he's still talking to Obi- that, blah, blah, blah. He's still talking that Obi-Wan Kenobi gibberish, sir, even though you're his rightful master now. R2, you're fortunate he doesn't blast you into a million pieces right here. Well, come on, it's getting late. I only hope we can get back before... R2-D2 lets out a big whee! Now what? Oh my, sir. R2 says there are several creatures approaching rapidly from the southeast. Wow, all that in one wheat. Yeah. Sand people, or worse. Maybe Avon salespeople. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, don't answer the door. Oh, we're outside. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Luke takes a long-barreled gun off his back, and he runs to get a better location, you know, where he's not trapped in a canyon. I just hope that R2 unit is on the blink. As you know, sir, such a thing is not beyond the realm of possibility. Come on, R2. Looking through one of his many pairs of binoculars, <laughs> uh, Luke spies some Banthas and one sand person, but where are the others, he wonders. 
He finds out when one rears up behind him wielding a very weird looking weapon. It looks like something he pulled off the wall in a public restroom. I don't really understand this thing. <laughs> and I remember when you watch it on TV, this is where it would go to commercial. Exactly, uh, yes, right here. <laughs> C3P goes, Sir, look out! Caption reads, Suddenly, a gruesome Tuscan raider looms above the startled lad, and only his laser rifle, now smashed to bits, prevents Luke Skywalker's skull from being the same. The gather fee of the Sand People is a formidable weapon. So is that what this thing is? I, I, I would have guessed maybe it was like a bumper from a city bus or something. <laughs> In seconds, Luke is forced backward till he staggers at the edge of a deep crevice. 3PO has already toppled into it. Naturally. And now the sinister raider towers above the terrified boy. Laughing to his horrible, laughing his horrible inhuman laugh, his dreaded axe blade poised to kill. Where's the blade on that thing? I, I can see like two spikes and maybe like a mallet end. This, this, this scene is so weird because obviously Roy Thomas and Howard Chicken had a different weapon in mind. It's, a, <laughs> right? it's, like, it's just not, not you know, blending up here at all. <laughs> and the final caption reads, next issue, on to Alderaan. Mm-hmm. Bum, bum, bum. So Luke dies after this one, obviously, and uh, we don't know what happens. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going to put a pin in it for the moment, right? And uh, I think so. Calm down from all the excitement. Maybe take a little space break. And when we come back, we'll tell you more about Roy Howard and Star Wars. Say, Reg, would you uh, happen to know how many volumes of Marvel's The Punisher there are? I have no idea. Well, if you had the CLZ app on your phone, you could find out with a swipe, and you would know that... Wait, that can't be right. <laughs> there, there, there are 12 volumes of The Punisher? A neat dozen volumes, everybody. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, CLZ.com gave us access to try out the app. Uh, not sponsored or otherwise partnered with them. We're just sharing the good news about this great app for collectors, specifically of comic books, but of course they go into all types of things. Absolutely. Uh, we do the comics here, but you can also catalog your movies, books, music, games, a whole bunch of stuff that you might collect. You can track with the CLZ app. So the, it's an app for your phone or tablet, and it syncs with a web-based desktop app through their cloud. So you, you load all your titles in on your phone, or if you're out in the wild doing your digging and uh, you find some titles that you want to put on your wish list or whatever, you can go back and manage that on your desktop through the through either a web-based browser. Uh, Browser-based portal, whatever you want to call it, or a, hmm. uh, a, a desktop-based app. Absolutely, and you could even use your device to scan barcodes to add titles to your collection and to your wish list. And it works on most barcodes, and uh, what's really cool is that it actually works uh, right side up, upside down, and through comic bags. So if you've got 20,000 comics, you don't got to take them all out of the bag to add them to your library. Yeah, those those uh, readers can be kind of jittery sometimes, so mm -hmm. that's definitely a huge factor. You can also automatically download all of these issue details and image right away. It includes trade collections, too, so if you are a collector of trades this is a, still a useful app for you not to mention it also has a book collector side of it uh, you get the creator and character list cover art preview art everything that you need to see at a glance including how many volumes of Punisher there are you could find I, out right I, away I, and, if, and if you don't want to scan you can also do a search of a title and uh, we were so impressed they have a huge depth of titles going back to the golden age over small publishers 60s underground comics Tried to stump it several times. I could not really stump it, or uh, if if I did, it would uh, get unstumped with a different kind of search. So, really impressive, I'm telling you, this CLZ app. 
Absolutely. And for more information, you can go to clz.com and you can even try their app for free for one month on your Android or iOS device. All right. Thanks, everybody. And back to the show. Hey, folks. Welcome back to a uh, galaxy far away in a Mm-hmm. Time long, long time ago, something like that. I don't. Really, I messed it up because I don't really know <laughs> what I'm talking about. But uh, we are talking about Star Wars, the first volume from Marvel Comics. And uh, what you think of that issue, Chris? I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah. Um, I'd actually never read it before. Uh, oh, me neither. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it just seemed like one of those things I never needed to read because I had seen the movie and. Right. I, I never really crossed the streams, as, as a lot of people know. Um, but I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty neat. Um, one thing we talked about off the air was uh, was that how Biggs played a bigger role, no pun intended, in, yeah. in the comic. Where I, I mean, I I only really know about Biggs is because uh, in the Final Fantasy video games, they usually put like a cameo of characters named Biggs and Wedge. Oh, really? Uh, which is a you know a reference to Star Wars, of sure. course. And uh, and that's the only reason I even like connect Biggs to Star Wars because he's only in the movie there to get blown up. Yeah, but he he dies at the end. Spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen at Star the Death Wars. Star, yeah, but uh, it's interesting because the same. We're going to talk a little bit about it as we go into it. But the scenes that had Biggs Darklighter in them were cut at a very late stage, but mm-hmm. uh, they had already obviously written and drawn them, and it it really makes Luke's Skywalker character. Way different. Uh, sure. Instead of being a loner, you know, that just was, you know, you get the impression in the movie the way it is. It's just him, his aunt and his uncle on Tatooine, and he's just like, he wants to get out of there because he's got no friends, he's got no life. Nothing but for him. Yeah. This this is a different thing. He's got like a group where he's got Fixer and Gracie or whatever the heck her name was, and, and Biggs yeah. and stuff. <laughs> Biggs. Yeah. So it's it makes him a whole different character. Uh, you know, I definitely played him up on the super whiny side. But I, I wonder if that's how he was intended on the in the movie, because uh, he was, like I said, had some sort of a social life and stuff like that. Sure, um, that's very interesting. I, I, I thought also this was a very well broken down issue. Uh, essentially, what flip back page to page from space stuff to Tatooine, you know. Yeah. But I think it it really definitely showed the acumen of. As a matter of fact, we'll hear later primarily uh, Howard Chaykin. But both of them to break down a uh, these scenes from the movie in a, in a very digestible, sensible way. Sure. Definitely knew what they were doing. So uh, we're going to wrap it up for all this stuff, starting off with Roy Thomas, who in 1981, after a dispute with then-editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, signed a three-year exclusive writing-editing contract with DC Comics. He had moved to the West Coast, like we mentioned, and he didn't like his work being handled at Marvel by an in-house editor. He marked his return to DC Comics with a two-part Green Lantern story in Green Lantern number 138 and 139. That was March to April 1981, cover date. And he briefly wrote Batman, DC Comics Presents, and The Legion of Superheroes. He dipped back into the Golden Age well and realized another childhood dream when he was able to write for the Justice Society of America, the very thing that put him in touch with, uh, you know, Jerry Bales all those years ago. Uh, reintroduced, reintroduced them in an insert in Justice League of America number 193. That was an August 1981 cover date and continued on in All-Star Squadron number 1, September 1981 cover date. DC gave Thomas's work a promotional push by featuring several of the series in free 16-page insert previews and we'll be 
talking about those as we go along. Yeah. Uh, Thomas married his second wife, Danette Couto, in May 1981. Couto, maybe. She legally changed her name to Dan, and the two of them became and have been frequent writing partners. In fact, he credits Dan with the original idea for the Arak Son of Thunder series, drawn by Ernie Cologne, uh, first appearing in an insert in The Warlord number 48, August 1981 cover date, and then it had its own series that ran for 50 issues, September 1981 to November 1985 cover dates. Uh, writer Jerry Conway would also be a frequent collaborator with Thomas. Uh, together, they wrote a, a two-part Superman-Captain Marvel team-up. That was in DC Comics Presents number 33, uh, May 1981 cover date. Also a series of Atari Force and Sword Quest mini-comics, which were packaged with the Atari 2600 video games. And also three Justice League Justice Society uh, annual crossover events. Uh, they collaborated on the screenplays for two movies together. This was the animated feature Fire and Ice in 1983 and Conan the Destroyer in 1984. Later on that year, Roy wrote to Jim Shooter in a letter that, uh, which reads in part, quote, to let bygones be bygones, and if possible, to avoid adverse comment on Marvel and its policies. I've even long regretted the fact that your elevation to the position of editor-in-chief, in which you're obviously done a fine job, came at a time after I'd moved to the West Coast. Perhaps if we had more personal communication from 1977 to 1980, we could have come to some sort of agreement at the time, or at least parted under more amicable circumstances. I leave it to you to decide if we should ever make any attempt to rectify that situation. Certainly, I've never been a grudge carrier in other cases. So, while uh, Jim Shooter mulled that over, Roy and <laughs> Scott Shaw created Captain A Carrot and his amazing Zoo crew, who debuted in an insert in New Teen Titans number 16 with a February 1982 cover date and then ran for 20 issues from 1982 to 1983, and which I liked very much as a little boy. <laughs> uh, Roy wrote issues 288 to 300 of Wonder Woman, that was February 1982 to February 1983 cover dates. Issue 300 was co-written with Dan Thomas, who, as Roy pointed out to Alter Ego in 1999, became the first woman to ever ever to receive scripting credit on the world's foremost superheroine. In 1983, Thomas and artist Jerry Ordway created Infinity Inc., a group composed of the JSA's children, the characters debuting in All-Star Squadron number 25, September 1983 cover date. Infinity Inc. ran for 53 issues, cover dated March 1984 to June 1988, and Thomas also wrote several limited series for DC, including America vs. the Justice Society that had four issues, January through April 1985 cover dates, Johnny Thunder, a.k.a. Thunderbolt, that ran for four issues, February through August 1985 cover dates, Shazam! The New Beginning, four issues, April through July 1987 cover dates, Crimson Avenger 4 added four issues, June through September 1988 cover date, and two issues of DC Challenge that was number 9, July 1986 cover date, and Phase 12.3, October 1986 cover date. That was the one where they, uh, you know... Kind of mashed it all together. Exactly. Each creative team handed it off, and they they couldn't quite end it on a 12. They had to end it on a four-part 12 issue um, (laughs) that, by the end, no one was really buying. But anyway... no. Uh, Roy also contributed to the secret to the series Secret Origins when Golden Age characters were being profiled, and he did do the the uh, bios for Superman and Batman. 
Yeah, they launched that uh, volume with the, with, with the Golden Age Superman, yeah. Now, uh, Roy's letter to Jim Shooter over at Marvel must have assuaged any hard feelings, because by 1986, he'd begun writing for Marvel's New Universe line. This would begin with Spitfire and the Troubleshooters number 5, February 1987 cover date. He then embarked on a multi-issue run of Night Mask, which was co-scripted by his wife, Dan Thomas, beginning with issue number six, April 1987 cover date. He'd go on to script titles starring Doctor Strange, Thor, The Avengers West Coast, and Conan. And also in 1986, Roy wrote a one-shot issue titled The Last Days of the Justice Society, 1986, penciled by David Ross. Now, in this very, very dense story, <laughs> the, uh, they wiped the uh, Justice Society out of uh, time here, you know, just in time for Christ on Infinite Earth. So, yeah. tied things up neat and tiny. Well, uh, from here, uh, well, tied things up, but neat, I don't know, but okay. Yeah, the bow would look nice, but uh, <laughs> but there was there was stuff dripping. Uh, now, uh, Young All Stars replaced All Star Squadron following Crisis, and that debuted with its first issue, June 1987, and that would run for 31 issues plus an annual. Uh, Thomas's last major project for DC was an adaptation of Richard Wagner's Ring Cycle, uh, drawn by Gil Kane and published between 1989 and 1990. In the 90s, Roy wrote issues of the TV series tie-ins Xeno Warrior Princess and Hercules the Legendary Journeys that was for Topps Comics. Additionally, he began writing more for other media, which would include television. Yeah, I think he did uh, contribute to those television shows also, but I didn't go that deep looking sure. for that, to be honest with you. Uh, Roy relaunched Alter Ego as a magazine published by Tomorrow's Publishing in 1999. In 2005, Roy earned a master's degree in humanities from California State University. Roy Thomas and Dick Giordano completed the four-issue miniseries Stoker's Dracula that ran October 2004 to May 2005 cover dates for Marvel Comics, an adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel Dracula. The two had began it 30 years earlier in 10 to 12 page installments, beginning with Marvel's black and white magazine Dracula Lives, number 5, March 1974 cover dates. Then, then it ran through issues 6 through 8, then 10 through 11, and in Marvel preview number 8. In 2006 to 2007, Thomas wrote five issues of Anthem, a comic about World War II superheroes in an alternate reality for heroic publishing. He returned to Red Sonja in 2006, writing the one-shot Red Sonja, Monster Isle, for Dynamite Entertainment. From 2007 to 2010, Thomas returned to Marvel to write a number of adaptations of classic literature for the imprint Marvel Illustrated. These would include The Last of the Mohicans, The Man in the Iron Mask, Treasure Island, The Iliad, Moby Dick, The Picture of Dorian Gray, The Three Musketeers, and Kidnapped. Now, hold on, Chris. I've never seen these comics. Marvel they, Illustrated. Yeah, they they were a thing. <laughs> I, I I mean I was I was standing in comic stores at the time and I don't recall these at all. Yeah, they they uh, it was a weird time. I I I probably couldn't point them out, but I do remember them being a thing from right, gotta, previous gotta, catalogs gotta, and stuff. I gotta do a little back back search. <laughs> it's, just, it's too crazy to believe. But anyway, go ahead. Especially for the time. Yeah, absolutely. that's what I'm thinking. Like, what a weird yeah, time to do this. 1960, right. maybe. Yeah. No. Now, uh, through this imprint, uh, he would also release the collected Stoker's Dracula, which included all that stuff originally printed in the 70s, and this would come out in 2010. In 2012, he teamed with artists Mike Hawthorne and Dan Panosian on Dark Horse's Conan, The Road of Kings. That was a 12-issue series. 
In 2014, he wrote 75 Years of Marvel, From the Golden Age to the Silver Screen for Tashin. That was a uh, 11.4 by 15.6 inch, 712 page history of Marvel Comics that comes in a cardboard box with a handle. Yeah, this thing is tremendous, Massive. folks. <laughs> you could use it as a coffee table. You truly can. It's 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 <laughs> it's way too big, I think, for a book. But uh, in 2018, Thomas reunited with Stanley at his house in Beverly Hills for the first time in more than 30 years to discuss Thomas's book, The Stan Lee Story. During the gathering, Lee told his manager, Simino, to take care of my boy Roy before snapping a few pictures together. These wound up being the last photos of Stan Lee ever taken. Wow. Amazing. Uh, and that was very recently, of course. Yeah. Uh, Roy was inducted into the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame in 2011 and serves on the Hero Initiative Disbursement Committee. Uh, Hero Initiative, for those that don't know, is a charity uh, or nonprofit organization that essentially, you know, supports creators in their old age that don't have a... Yeah. Didn't get that retirement plan that, you know, isn't offered by comics. So, uh, yeah, that's what he does. Anyway, uh, completing Howard Chaikin. In 1978, he wrote and drew his Cody Starbuck creation for the anthology title Star Reach. This is an early independent title. And actually, it was Cody Starbuck, which I think appeared earlier in a Marvel, one of the Marvel black and like whites. Like a Marvel premiere or something? Yeah, one of those. Yeah. Uh, that's what really got him the Star Wars gig because it was essentially about a swashbuckling you know, sci-fi space guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he also drew a graphic novel penned by a well-known sci-fi author, Samuel R. Delaney, titled Empire, published by Byron Press that same year of 1978. For the first time, Howard did professional work without the conditions of the Comics Code Authority, and he liked it. Indeed, he stopped working on Star Wars after issue 10, April 1978, cover date, to pursue more independent work. Though, Chaikin did pencil DC Comics' first miniseries, World of Krypton, July through September 1979, written by Paul Kupperberg. In late 1978, Chaikin, Walt Simonson, Val Mayerick, and Jim Starlin formed Upstart Associates, a shared studio space on West 29th Street in New York City. The membership of this team would change over time. In the next few years, he produced material for Heavy Metal Magazine, drew a graphic ad novel adaptation of Alfred Bester's The Star's My Destination, and produced illustrations for works by Roger Zelazny. Zelazny. Uh, Chaikin collaborated with Michael Moorcock on the graphic novel Swords of Heaven, Flowers of Hell in 1979, using a very lush, painted style. Uh, he also contributed designs that year to the, to the animated film version of Heavy Metal, which came out in 1981. In 1980, Howard designed the album cover of The Legend of Jesse James, a 1980 country music concept album by various artists singing songs by English songwriter Paul Kennerly, based on the story of the American Old West outlaw Jesse James. How about that? Talk about a concept, uh, right? Woof. Right. <laughs> now, Jaken would head back to Marvel and had a six-issue run on Micronauts. That was issues uh, 13 through 18, January through June 1980, cover date. He'd go back to Cody Starbuck with a story in heavy metal between uh, May and September 1981 in the same art style that he'd used on Swords of Heaven, Flowers of Hell. In uh, 1983, Chaikin launched American Flag. This came out from First Comics. Uh, perhaps the work most associated with him, uh, it's a story about a dystopian future full of p political satire. This would run for 50 issues, cover dates October 1983 through March 1988. 
After the first 26, issue, 26 issues of American Flag, Chaikin started work on new projects. Uh, his involvement in his original run of the series was that of writer for 29 issues, interior artist for issues 1 through 12 and 14 through 26, and then cover artist for issues 1 through 33. He'd returned to full art and writing duties for the American Flag special one-shot in 1986, and in 1987, a four-issue run was released. Uh, then the title was canceled and relaunched as Howard Chaikin's American Flag, and that would run 12 issues, all written by Howard. So you are right to be confused if you're collecting. But uh, Oh, yeah. The first of those new projects that he uh, had quit to uh, work on was a revamp of The Shadow in a four-issue miniseries from DC Comics in 1986. Chaikin produced a two-volume noir fantasy graphic novel with a jazz soundtrack, Time Squared, The Epiphany of the Epiphany and Time Squared, The Satisfaction of Black Mariah in 1986 and 1987, respectively. In 1987, Chaikin described plans for a third volume, saying, It's probably going to be grossly different from the first two, because I'm taking things in another direction. I want to do a story that is both very funny and at the same time very, very ugly. Really nasty and unpleasant because, frankly, it's the place to do that sort of thing. It was planned for 1988, but that third volume has never been released. In 2008, Howard said, To tell you the truth, my first interest would be to do another Times Squared, because that was a very personal product for me. It's a fantasia of my family's story. Before returning to American Flag, Chaikin revamped another DC Comics property with Blackhawk, published in 1988. That job was well on the can already, however, because in 1987, Chaikin, with Alan Moore and Frank Miller, refused to work for the company after DC proposed a system of labeling comics for violent or sexual content. Speaking of which, uh, <laughs> now, the same year the Black Hawk miniseries came out, Chicken's Black Kiss, a 12-issue series published by Vortex Comics, was about a sex-obsessed vampires in Hollywood, was released. Uh, it was very explicit, uh, very, very explicit, yeah. and uh, also gross. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, now, though Black Kiss shipped sealed in an adults-only clear plastic bag, its content drew much criticism. This did not stop it from selling well enough for Chaikin to describe it as, quote, probably on a page uh, on a per-page basis, the most profitable book I've ever done. Wow. I guess that's saying something, isn't it? Hey. <laughs> now, uh, Chaikin would return to D.C. in 1990 to write the three-issue miniseries Twilight, this was drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Uh, while he was there, he revamped some of uh, DC's Silver Age science fiction heroes, such as Tommy Tomorrow and Space Cabbie. In uh, 1990 through 91, he co-wrote the miniseries Fafnerd. Fafnerd. You got you me, that? man. Fafnerd. Fawford and Gray Mauser with uh, John Francis Moore for Epic Comics. This was penciled by uh, Mike Mignola. And he'd actually done uh, the first three or four issues of Swords of Sorcery for DC in mm. the 70s, which also featured Fafner and Grey Mauser. Well, there you go. Uh, now, Howard had collaborated with John and Mike before in the 70s on Iron Wolf. This is Fires of the Revolution, a series of chapters published by DC Comics in the anthology Weird Worlds. And these were ultimately collected in a one-shot, which was cover dated March 1987. Chaikin wrote and illustrated Midnight Men for Marvel's epic imprint in 1993. He co-created and co-designed Firearm for Malibu Comics that same year. He then, with several colleagues, formed the creator-owned Bravura imprint uh, from Malibu at that same place. 
For them, Chaikin created the four-issue miniseries Power and Glory in 1994. Then in 1996, DC's Helix imprint published Cyberella, a cyberpunk dystopia written by Chaikin and drawn by Don Cameron. He wrote several Elseworlds stories for DC Comics, including Batman Dark Allegiances, which he drew, wrote and drew in 1996. Howard was the executive script, script, script consultant for the 1990-91 Flash television series on CBS, and later worked on action-adventure programs such as Viper, Earth Final Comple- Conflict, and Mutant X. Three shows I do not remember at all. Mutant X uh, had, had, was tenuously tied to Marvel. I, it uh, it and sounds it was, like it. But... it was, I, I never saw it, but it looked real, real bad. Yeah, this is 90s. Uh, I think I was yeah. probably in college at the time. Jake hmm. uh, returned to comics and co-wrote with David Tishman the three-issue miniseries Pulp Fantastic for Vertigo, art by Rick Berchet, uh, February through April 2000 cover dates. Chaikin co-wrote American Century with David Tishman for Vertigo, 27 issues, May 2001 to October 2003 cover dates. This was imagined as a post-war pulp adventure strip inspired by the likes of Terry and the Pirates and EC Comics war stories created by Harvey Kurtzman. His next work was Mighty Love, a 96-page original graphic novel, which was published by DC Comics in 2004, and was described as, You've Got Mail with Superpowers. Wow. Uh, yeah, this, so, this would contain his first art since the 1990s. It sounds horrible. I mean, well, how, how did they get greenlit? <laughs> Good Lord. It, it, is Meg Ryan in it? I guess, maybe. <laughs> Am I thinking of the right movie? <laughs> now, that year, uh, Chaikin and Tishman would revamp The Challenge of the, of the Unknown in a six-issue miniseries for DC, as well as writing a miniseries about gangster vampires called Vi- um, the, the Bite Club that came out from Vertigo. They also wrote Barnum, In Secret Service to the USA. This is a graphic novel in which real-life showman P.T. Barnum comes to the aid of the U.S. government. That came out, came out in 2005 from Vertigo. Also in 2005, Chicken produced the six-part City of Tomorrow, a DC Wildstorm production involving a futuristic city populated by gangster robots. Also that same year, he wrote the four-issue miniseries Legend, which updated the character Hugo Danner for Wildstorm. Also in that year, Howard illustrated 24 College Avenue. This is a story serialized online in 54 chapters for ESPN.com's Page 2 section. ESPN.com columnist Jim Capel or Capel wrote the text, which was accompanied by a single panel of uh, Chaikin's art. Yeah, this was not well received by many, including one reader who wrote, ESPN's 24 College Ave, what a complete joke. What were the people at ESPN.com thinking? This series, if you can call it that, is filled with just about every stereotype in the book. Not only is there a civil engineering student from Tunisia with radical views named Ahmed Muhammad, there is also the token black guy named Keenan Hill, who so happens to play linebacker on the football team. I cannot believe this actually made the final cutting board for page two. If this contrived force-fed concept makes it through three times a week schedule throughout the school year, I will be really surprised. The geniuses at ESPN have done it again, and they always wonder why people are so critical about their network and how much it has fallen off. Sounds like he just didn't get the satire of it, man. Probably. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> Thing one about it. Yeah, who knows? Uh, Chaikin began working on Hawk Girl, penciling with Walter Simonson writing, starting with issue number 50, uh, May 2006, cover date. At issue 56, he stopped drawing the series, mainly to get time to work on Marvel's Blade with Mark Guggenheim, although he continued to draw Hawk Girl covers for a few issues. 
Later that year, DC released Guy Gardner, Collateral Damage, a two-issue series written and drawn by Chaikin. After Blade was canceled with issue 12, he put penciled Punisher, Volume 7, Number 50, October 2007, Wolverine, Volume 3, 56 to 61, October 2007 and March 2008, Cover Dates, Punisher War Journal, Volume 2, Number 16 through 24, April 2006 to December 2008, Cover Dates, and an issue of Immortal Iron Fist, which would have been somewhere in there, let's say. Yeah. Uh, Chaykin illustrated the 2008 Marvel Max comic War is Hell, the first flight of the Phantom Eagle, scripted by Garth Ennis. He wrote Supreme Power, Volume 3, Issues 1 through 12, September 2008 through July 2009 for Marvel. Uh, also in 2009, he wrote and penciled Dominic Fortune. That was another Marvel Max series. In 2010, he wrote Die, uh, Die Hard Year One, which is a comic about John McClane from the Die Hard series of movies from, for Boom Studios. In June 2010, Marvel uh, began publishing a Rawhide Kid miniseries drawn by Chaikin and written by Ron Zimmerman. Chaikin wrote and drew Avengers ni- the Avengers 1959 five-issue miniseries that ran from December 2011 to March 2012. Uh, now, this was a story spun out of the new Avengers series. Chaikin helmed a reboot of the science fiction character Buck Rogers. This came out from Hermes Press beginning in August 2013 and was collected in trade in uh, 2014. In 2017, he produced the six-issue miniseries The Divided States of Hysteria for Image Comics. And uh, he's currently writing and drawing the title Hey Kids Comics, also for Image. Like Roy Thomas, Howard also serves on the disbursement committee for the Hero Initiative program. And he received an Inkpot Award back in 1977. Another real lazy guy, this uh, chick, huh? Yeah, goodness. these guys just sitting on their hands all he's the time. He's only, only writing like six to ten books a year for good, you know, <laughs> plus drawing one. Right. <laughs> um, now, we're going to talk a little bit about Star Wars. Uh, yeah. This apparently was a very popular movie, Chris. I didn't know this. I, I think <clears> I heard that something. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars was released in theaters in the United States on May 25th, 1977. That was a limited release, though. Star Wars was originally slated for release on, in Christmas 1976. However, production delays pushed the release to summer 1977, which actually timed it to three months after the on-sale date of the Marvel series debut, which was by design. Uh, like we said, 20th Century Fox, the uh, studio, hoped that the comic book would promote the movie. Not the other way around, remember. Uh, an original cut of the film included scenes with Biggs Darklighter, as shown in the first issue of the comic, and editor Richard Chu explained the rationale behind removing these scenes as a narrative decision. He said, in the first five minutes, we were hitting everybody with more information that they could handle. There were too many storylines to keep straight, the robots and the princess Vader, Luke, so we simplified it by taking out Luke and Biggs. Uh, or Luke and Biggs, those scenes. Uh, George Lucas in the studio obviously agreed with this idea. Mm-hmm. In February 1977, Lucas screened an early cut of the film for Fox executives, uh, several director friends, along with Roy Thomas and Howard Chaikin, and some of the other uh, comic book professionals. Everyone but Steven Spielberg hated it. <laughs> uh, in contrast, days later, uh, the same cut was screened for 20th Century Fox studio executives, and they loved it. Uh, producer Gareth Wigan told Lucas, This is the greatest film I've ever seen. And he cried during the screening. Wow. 
How about that? Uh, George Lucas was shocked at this response, having never gotten such positive feedback from executives ever before. I mean, it's like the reverse of every other story you've ever heard uh, in movies. It's true. You know, the executives yeah. hated it. They chopped it to bits, and no one believed in it, and then they, uh, you know, the people loved it. But anyway, uh, in that same interview with Alter Ego that we will be quoting from now until the end of time, <laughs> Roy Thomas recalls his reaction to this rough cut a little more kindly. He says... It started with a crawl of words moving up the screen that was copied from the old Flash Gordon serials of the 30s, since they had been George's original inspiration. Only thing is, this wasn't the same crawl the audience would see in May. Not that George necessarily knew that then. It had entirely different wording, and did not start with or contain the phrase, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It told the movie's backstory just as it was written in the screenplay Howard and I had. And of course... It's on the first page of the first issue of the comic, word for word. He continues, After the crawl, of course, came that wonderful, breathtaking opening with the spaceship entering the screen from the top and uh, then being pursued by another one. The very first scene set the pace for the whole movie. It put the audience in the right frame of mind for what they were going to see. For, as everyone knows now, but almost nobody was prepared for then, the second spaceship would just keep coming, uh, keep filling the screen, dwarfing the first ship and all of our preconceptions about how big a spaceship could be. The early audience... The early audience would have that same gaping, jaw-dropping response that the artists and I, and maybe George's director friends for all I know, had that day, during what Star Wars ambassador Steve Sansweet years later would inform was often referred to as, quote, that legendary screening. It's interesting in retrospect that although very few technical effects were in place in that rough cut, the first scene was basically complete. I guess George wanted to set up things right for the screening. It would be even more effective on a bigger screen, of course. We saw it on a more or less standard size home movie screen. Maybe bigger. The fight aboard the boarded ship was mostly in good shape, except that there were no ray blasts coming out of the weapons that were fired. Instead of a ray of light, there were just hand-drawn arrows coming out of people's guns. Placeholders to tell the special effects people where the ray blast should go. That got us in the mood to accept the lack of special effects in what followed. I remember being struck when Darth Vader enters the end of that scene by his resemblance to Dr. Doom, not that that hadn't occurred to all of us long before. But I wasn't prepared for what came next. When Vader spoke, well, there was no James Earl Jones voiceover yet, just actor David Prowse saying his lines in what I guess was a heavy Scottish accent as filtered through a heavy gas mask. In other words, I couldn't understand a single word of what he said. Luckily, I knew the gist of it from the screenplay. As the movie moved along, I noticed a scene from early in the screenplay between Luke and his and some of his buddies on Tatooine, one of whom was Biggs Darklighter, had been cut. Of course, that scene appeared in the first issue of the comic going on sale any day, and Marvel would be raked over the coals by a couple of unsophisticated letter writers who knew from nothing about how far how far movies or comic books had to be prepared in advance. Biggs is one of the rebel pilots in the final battle against the Death Star, but his death means little to nothing in the film because the character hadn't been well introduced to the audience. People are more uh, concerned about Porkins in that scene. They're like, hope he doesn't fight. (laughs) Uh, The big scene in the rough cut for me was the battle with the TIE fighters after Luke, Leia, Han, and Chewbacca escaped from the Death Star near the middle of the film. Luke or Han would be shown firing away with like tail gunners and old World War II bombers, and then there'd be a cut to black and white stock footage of World War II aerial dogfights between allies and Axis, with some Zero or Messerschmitt or whatever it was going down in flames. 
Or maybe it was Korean War footage between Sabre Jets and MIGs. But I definitely remember that it was in black and white and was real war footage. Then back to Han or Luke blasting away, then cut to more dogfighting. It was suddenly like a time travel movie. I found this back and forth hilarious, and I wish that, on the 40th anniversary of Star Wars, Lucasfilm and Disney would release a DVD of that rough cut. I bet it would sell. I'd buy a copy. The first time I ever saw Star Wars was on TV, and they, they actually had a little featurette at the about end that, that. that showed that. that yeah, that showed he, the, yeah, the, the jump back and forth of the dog around there, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Roy continues, or concludes, uh, By the time the, train, the screening was finished, I was convinced Star Wars would be a good movie. Now, whether or not it would be, whether it would be a hit or not, well, that no man could say. Now, Star Wars originally budded, budgeted at $8 million, but produced for over $11 million, remains one of the most financially successful films of all time. It's earned $461 million in the U.S. and $314 million overseas, totaling $775 million worldwide. It's a lot of dough. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars surpassed Jaws uh, from 1975 to become the highest-grossing film of all time to that point. And we could spend hours talking about any aspect of this movie or the franchise. We could do a whole series on the toys alone. (laughs) But that has been done by far better and more knowledgeable podcasts than ours. And we're, as you know, just about the comics, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, issue one of Star Wars was released for sale on April 12th, 1977. Right from the beginning, folks at Marvel were very anxious about this book. Stan Lee had all but washed his hands for it right after approving the deal. (laughs) Now, Roy would say to Alter Ego, the next hurdle was Marvel Circulation Director Ed Shulkin. I don't remember dealing with him on it myself, except once. He had a a good reputation in the industry as a circulation director, but he came up to me to say, very early in the project, when I dropped by the Marvel office, as I did at least a couple times a week, to touch base with other editors and sort of check things out. Shulkin told me he had no faith in the comic, since earlier movie adaptations Marvel had done hadn't sold all that well. I guess he meant The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, which appeared in Worlds Unknown 7 through 8, uh, June, August 1974, although Planet of the Apes was up to about two dozen issues by then. It bothered him that we'd be doing six issues of a comic that no one was buying. That kind of thinking, which was not unreasonable, is why I'm fairly sure the print run of the early issues of Star Wars was on the low side. In fact, with print, rows, with print runs needing to be set a couple of months or more in advance, I wonder what was the earliest of the six issues for which Marvel was able to jump up the print run, probably number five or number six at the earliest. He goes on, Anyway, Shulkin asked me if I could adapt the movie in one or two issues instead of six. I told him I could do it, but I wouldn't do it. I explained that I felt that to do a decent job adapting an adventure movie, we'd need five or six issues. Well, I'm pretty sure I didn't mention the five part at this stage. If I had, he'd have jumped on it. I reminded him that I wasn't getting paid anything extra by either George or 20th or Marvel for doing this comic. At this stage, there wasn't even any royalties or incentive payments that would kick in if the comic sold well. So I told Ed that if he wanted to get Stan to appoint somebody else to write and edit the comic, I'd step aside, and then they could make it any number of issues they wanted. One issue, two issues, it wouldn't matter to me then. But of course, at the time, both he and I were operating under the distinct impression that George Lucas and Star Wars licensor Charlie Lippincott specifically wanted me to handle the book. Maybe they didn't really care. Maybe all they cared about was Chaikin's art. But if so, we didn't know that. Thus, Marvel wasn't really eager to have the writer-editor walk off the project, 
So Shulkin gave up on the idea of anything less than six issues, and I never heard anything more about it directly. But he didn't give up on his pessimism about the comic. In the last few weeks or even days before Star Wars opening in late May of 77, note there was a limited theatrical release in May, a wider release nationwide in late June. Comic book retailer Ed Summer went up to Marvel. He had some business up there related to his comic store, which was Super Snipe Comic Book Emporium, Euphorium, co-owned with George Lucas on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, and he had a talk with Ed Shulkin. Uh, Ed Summer told me by phone about the conversation very soon afterward, while it was fresh in his mind. He said Shulkin had told him, we're really going to take a bath with that adaptation of your friend George Lucas's movie. Ed told him, well, I don't think so. Yeah, Marvel took a bath, all right. A bath in money. <laughs> Ed Shulkin was a smart guy, no question. But uh, who knew Star Wars would be such a huge hit? I certainly didn't. I didn't champion Star Wars because I wanted to harness myself and Marvel in a huge hit. I just thought it would be a, it would be fun to adapt this space opera movie. Now, according to Roy, uh, Shulkin complained that the returns on the first issue were huge, somewhere around 57% which would actually have been somewhat low in those newsstand days. Yes, I think he was just uh, busting chops, as we like to say. Probably. The complaint ceased, however, when the movie debuted, and uh, you can imagine that the numbers ticked up quite rapidly. Coming right, flying off the shelves, yeah. Yeah. Jim Shooter goes into much more detail on his blog, jimshooter.com, first explaining that Marvel sales were, at the time, very poor. He says, the prevailing wisdom at the time said science fiction doesn't sell. Adapting movies uh, movies with the hokey title Star Wars seemed like folly to most. What sold, said the prevailing wisdom, were male superheroes and male-dominated groups, especially the marquee stars like Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four. Not so much the third-string characters like Daredevil. And there had to be lots of action against marquee supervillains interlaced with some soap opera. That was about it. That's what the kids in Fudge, Nebraska wanted. Period. The great proponents of prevailing wisdom were Marv Wolfman and Len Wein. As I said in an earlier post, a bunch of us hung out a lot after work, including them a few, and a few other staffers, freelancers, and me, and we talked shop a lot. When the prevailing wisdom reared its head, as in Len and Marv saying, Westerns don't sell or whatever, I usually said, show me a good one. That generally sparked jeers, derision, and some debate. One of the counters to my challenge was, and I'm not making this up, I cannot write fiction well enough to make this up. It says, good doesn't sell. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Generally, uh, proof was cited. Warlock is good, but it doesn't sell. Nothing by McGregor or Gerber sells, etc. My counter was that while each of those examples had good, even excellent things about them, they also had negatives. He goes on, there was a lot of opposition to Star Wars. Even Stan wasn't keen on the idea. Even I wasn't. I had no prejudice against science fiction, but wasting time on an adaptation of a movie with a dumb title described as an outer space western? I was told, don't know for sure, that George Lucas himself came to Marvel's offices to meet with Stan and help convince him that he, we should license Star Wars. I was told that Stan kept him waiting for 45 minutes in the reception room. Apocryphal? Maybe. Roy would know. But if so, it still reflects the mood at the time. I don't know how Roy got it done. I was just the associate editor and not privy to much of the wrangling that went on. But Roy got the deal done and we published Star Wars. The first two issues of our six-issue adaptation came out in advance of the movie. Driven by the advanced marketing for the movie, sales were very good. 
Then, about the time the third issue shipped, the movie was released. Sales made the jump to hyperspace. Star Wars the movie stayed in theaters forever, it seemed. Not since the Beatles had I seen a cultural phenomenon of such power. The comic sold and sold and sold. We reprinted the adaptation in every possible format. They all sold and sold and sold. In the most conservative terms, it was inarguable that the success of the Star Wars comics was a significant factor in Marvel's survival through a couple of very difficult years, 1977 and 1978. Yeah, and for what it's worth, this single comic series made Archie Goodwin's 18-month tenure Marvel's, as Marvel's editor-in-chief a big success. Despite the rest of the line suffering the same scheduled delays and sales problems as always, but consider that it was, you know, a huge time for Archie. Yeah. Uh, the only downside for Marvel is that the agreed upon 100,000 uh, copy sales quota that was quickly surpassed, uh, allowing Lippincott to renegotiate their royalty agreements from a very strong position. Original stories began appearing as of issue number seven, January 1978, by the same creative team of Roy Thomas and Howard Chaikin. Writer Archie Goodwin and art- artist Carmine Infantino took over the series as of number 11, a May 1978 cover date. Yeah, and if you're familiar with any of these uh, early books here, you might recognize a uh, green rabbit Ooh. on the cover of the book, or even in, you know, in the book, of course. Uh, now, unlike today, Lucasfilm didn't keep an intensely strict watch on the expanded universe being created in the comics and other media, books and whatever. In fact, that practice may have begun specifically due to <laughs> what we're about to tell you about. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> Jackson, J-A-X-X-O-N, a six-foot-tall green humanoid rabbit smuggler, appeared in Issue 8 of Star Wars, that was February 1978 cover date, and he featured prominently in that story arc. Now, it's the kind of character that could work in a comic book, but would never work in a movie because, uh, I mean, Jackson is a uh, giant green bunny, yeah, right? Uh, like I mean, a, car- a cartoon bunny, too, not even like a realistic bunny Yeah, head. for sure. Uh, Roy Thomas told of it to Alter Ego. He said, after the movie came out, I had one or two further meetings with George Lucas. First, I was told I couldn't use Darth Vader in any way, shape, or form. Also, I couldn't do anything with any romance between Luke and Leia, something that was at least implied in the first film. I wasn't told, not even a hint, that they were brother and sister, though I suppose George knew at that point. Next, I asked Charlie if I could do something with the Clone Wars, which are referred to at one point in the screenplay, but I was told, no, we might want to do something with that someday. Well, it took them a few decades, but they finally did. Shows I could recognize a good idea when I spotted it. (laughs) He continues, I wouldn't for a second deny that George was entirely within his rights to do what he wanted with his concept, but my interest in being part of the Star Wars team was diminishing by the moment, since the comic book was now now the stump of a tail on a very large and growing dog. So for the second story arc, I met with George at his office and got the approval to do what I, I described as a kind of magnificent, uh, magnificent seven storyline starring Han and Chewie, a samurai kind of movie for a samurai kind of comic. Uh, the Magnificent Seven is a 1960 Western remake of the 1954 Japanese film Seven Samurai starring Yul Brenner. Right, he's in the Magnificent Seven, not the uh, Japanese not movie. The, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, sometime after they'd seen Star Wars number eight or maybe nine, probably in a photocopy form, Charlie called and told me that George thought the story was too close to the Magnificent Seven. Well, maybe it was. It was kind of an in-joke thing. I even called one of our seven the Star Killer Kid, and I had named and asked Howard to model the lead villain after mad artist Sergio Aragones. 
I had a Don Quixote type character in there too Still, I'd basically written the story I told George I was going to write And if they didn't like it, well, that storyline would be over in an issue or two And we'd be moving on to another Charlie, over the phone, informed me that George really didn't like the Cream Bunny character. He felt it was just too humorous or cartoony or something. I forget the exact words, but that was the gist of it. Myself, I didn't see that much difference between the Green Bunny and Chewbacca the Wookiee. Sure, Jackson did look like a rabbit, or at least a Bugs Bunny version of one. The Wookiee is an alien that looks like a giant teddy bear. Though, admittedly, Jackson was more cartoony. It was about at this point in the conversation with Charlie complaining to me about both these things that even though the Green Bunny would be out of the series after number 10, I decided on the spur of the moment, and I immediately told Charlie this, that after number 10, I'd be leaving the book. He seemed quite surprised. I guess he expected me to come to heel because naturally I wouldn't want to lose the plum of writing the Star Wars comic. But with no royalties at stake, I saw it as just another comic book, and one which that had become much less fun one to write. I told Charlie I was honored to have been part of the Star Wars team up to this point, but that I was out as of issue 10. In fact, it was probably after that conversation with Charlie that I actually had Don Glut dialogue all or part of number 10 from my plot. Archie Goodwin took over both Star Wars comic writing assignments. Uh, Roy had also begun writing short, young, uh, adult-targeted stories for the magazine Pizzazz. That was a Marvel, a book Marvel put out. Yeah. Uh, maybe he had a more of a feel of it than I did. Certainly, he was much more amenable to working with Lucasfilm the way they wanted things handled. I think it was a win-win situation all around. The funny thing is, Archie clearly liked Shakens and my Green Bunny because he used them a few issues later in a story Walt Simonson drew. Archie used them. He's even on one cover. I guess nobody told him that George hated the character. I understand that word came back immediately from the Lucas people that Jackson was never again to be used. The Green Bunny was verboten. Now, Jackson would appear only in issues 8 through 11 and then 16 of the original series. And uh, we'll put a pin in the uh, Green Bunny for the rest of this episode. Not literally, but, you know, there's, there's more to well, say. maybe literally. Some other day. Poor Green <laughs> Bunny. Uh, back to the comics, a six-issue adaptation of the 1980 sequel film, The Empire Strikes Back, by Goodwin and artist Al Williamson and Carlos Garzon, appeared in issues 39 to 44, September 1980 to February 1981 cover dates. Williamson was also was offered the Empire Strikes Back adaptation upon Lucasfilm's spe specific request, as George Lucas appreciated Williamson's work for EC Comics on the Flash Gordon comic strip. The Empire adaptation appeared three in three other formats: as a magazine, Marvel Super Special number sixteen, an oversized tabloid edition, Marvel Special Edition featuring Star Wars: The Empire Strikes Back, and as a paperback book. Writer David Michelini and artist Walt Simonson became the new creative team with issue number 51, September 1981 cover date. And Ron Friends became the regular artist of the title starting, starting with 71, a May 1983 cover date. Marvel's adaptation of the third film in the series, Return of the Jedi, appeared in a separate four-issue limited series with cover dates October 1983 through January 1984. It also uh, made an appearance as Marvel's Super Special Number 27 and in a mass-market paperback. Starting in 1984, the Star Wars series was primarily written by Joe Duffy. Art for the final year and a half of the series was by Cynthia Martin. Final issue of the book was issue 107, September 1986 cover date. 
Marvel also produced, through its young adult uh, imprint Star Comics, 14 issues of Ewoks that ran from May 1985 through July 1987 cover dates by Dave Manick and Warren Kremer, uh, based on the animated series which was running at the time. Also in 1986, the same imprint would produce eight issues of Droids. That was April 1986 through June 1987 cover dates, also written by Dave Manick, uh, and also tying into an animated series that was going on at the time. Yeah, for that one, though, Warren Kramer handled art on several issues. There were a few pencilers on this short series, including some covers by John Romita Sr. So how about that? Uh, The Lost in Time story from issue four of Droids continues into issue 10 of Ewoks, so they have a crossover for whatever reason. Foreign markets had additional annuals and specials of the Star Wars, Ewoks, and Droids comics. Most of them were reprint material compiling two issues into one. But I'm sure collectors of the series make sure to get those. Yeah. And that will conclude Marvel's time with Star Wars comic books for now. For now. Because (laughs) there is more to say. Uh, We're going to come back. This, I guess, ultimately, this will be three three episodes of the Star Wars comic saga to to date. But Mm -hmm. uh, that'll be. We're not going to do them in in a row. We'll come back another time and talk about uh, the next stage of of Star Wars comics. Uh, if you want to write to us about your Star Wars memories, about these comics, about Jackson the Bunny, or whatever else you want to talk about, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, we do have a Patreon if you like what you hear and you want to throw us some support, get some exclusive content a couple, a few times a month, hit us up at patreon.com slash Reggie. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Cosmic T-Mill History. You can also check us out on Instagram at Cosmic T-Mill. Same thing on Twitter, at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can check out our weekly writings of uh, newer DC Comics at weirdsciencedccomics.com. Also some uh, classic stuff running there as well. Yeah, all kinds of crazy things. And uh, <laughs> over at Chris's personal blog, you can read a different DC comic being reviewed every single day of the week. It's at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. And boy, you've been throwing out some Reggie bait there lately, huh? You got <laughs> a some bit, of the Silver bit. Age. You got this Lois Lane out there. I saw a little some bit Wendy of Wendy uh... and Willie. Oh, goodness, God. <laughs> I, I, I ran to that one. So you got to check it out folks. He's got a great breakdown, pictures from the comic, ads, everything. Next best thing to read in the comic at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. Thank you. You can check out the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. You'll find our show notes there, our links, our images, our uh, even the episodes. You can find them there, too. Uh, a chronological listing of all of our shows, including the just-concluded Young Animal Gathering. That's right. Uh, 19 parts, 30 hours of discussion on Young Animal, whether uh, anybody wanted it or yeah, not. I wouldn't listen to it all at once. It's kind of, a, kind of, kind of an up-and-down emotional ride. It's a uh, but while you're over there at our site, if you are so inclined, if you're looking to do some Christmas shopping, please check out and click the banner for 80tees.com, where you can go and find some wonderful T-shirts of all types of varieties, not just from things having to do with the 1980s. They really do have sure. a bunch. So if you're a T-shirt kind of person, that's a good place to check out. Absolutely. They even have uh, the ugly sweaters for Christmas. So there's a lot of neat stuff there to check out. Uh, And also you could check out uh, our friends over at CLZ.com. You heard us talking about them during the break. They are the uh, app and uh, desktop application as well, where you can track all your collections, including specifically to us, your comics. That's right. And browser-based too. So definitely check them out. 
But boy, I think we did enough for them. We have enough for them this week, Chris. Ooh, I think so. Uh, so until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill, Skywalker-ishingly. See ya. I met them in a swamp down in Dagobah where it bubbles all the time like a giant carbonated soda. S-O-D-A soda. I saw the little wren sitting there on a log. Him his name and in a raspy voice he said Yoda Y-O-D-A Yoda Yo-Yo